Turn your Bibles, if you will, to the book of 1 John, where we will be continuing our study. 1 John, we're in chapter 3, and we're going to pick up at uh, verse 11 here in just a little while. I do apologize for being out the last two weeks. It was completely unexpected. Um, uh, just prior to the Thursday, just prior to that, I was informed by the, my company that I had to do some training. And I uh, was supposed to be out of town for a week, and then uh, the Friday of that, uh, of that week I was gone training. They said, well, you're up for another week. So I had to be gone out of town for two weeks. Um, I thought I was only going to be gone for one week, but uh, everything, life's a, a series of surprises. So here we are. I appreciate uh, Neil and um, um, Edwin filling in for me. And so we will pick up here. As I understand it, uh, they told me when I started this class that this was a short quarter, uh, and this class is supposed to end at the end of May. So uh, Edwin explained, I think that uh, I go one Wednesday night into June. Um, so I think I have two weeks left. And um, uh, if you've noticed the pace we're going, there's no way I'm going to be able to finish this book in, uh, in the time frame. So I looked at many different ways to try to speed through or summarize or, you know, I decided I would just continue going down the path we are and however far we get, then that's going to be the far, the, that's where we get to and we'll figure it out after that. So First John chapter 3, and we'll pick up at verse 11 and 12. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and slew his brother, and wherefore slew him, because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. We have already spent time talking about the concept of love and how important it is. We always need to understand that loving one another, loving our neighbor loving our brethren, loving others, uh, is an important characteristic of being a Christian. We also need to understand that it is a commandment. Um, John, uh, John chapter 13 verse 35 so, says, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if we love one another. So love is not only a commandment, it's a characteristic of who we are. It's, I, it's an identifying characteristic of who we should be. So it's critical that we understand uh, that, that we must love according to the Bible. I say that because the world has a completely different view of what love is. Uh, the world's view of love is very, very selfish, whereas biblical love is uh, very selfless. Um, we need to understand that biblical love is not just an emotion. Uh, we always get caught up in the worldly view of love as, as being an emotion. Uh, you know, that we have this warm and fuzzy feeling towards someone else. But love is, is much, 
is different than that, much deeper than that. We need to always understand that regardless of how we feel, love is action. I think the, the best way to, to understand that is John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world, it doesn't say that He cried and cried and cried because He saw us in our sin and He was hurt and He was upset because He loved us so much. It doesn't say that. God so loved the world that He gave. He did something about it. He was motivated by His love to act. And so ours must be uh, action as well. Then in verse 12 here, uh, uh, John presents for us a contrast. Our love is not to be like Cain's love. Um, if, this is somewhat supposition, but I would suppose that the day before the events took place that we know about Cain and Abel and so forth, if we were to go and talk to Cain and ask him, do you love your brother? I would expect that he would say, absolutely, he's my brother. Of course I love my brother. Of course I love Abel. But why would you ask me such a silly question? So we need to understand that we cannot love in a superficial kind of way that Cain did. The contrast uh, here shows us that Cain acted out of self-interest. The Bible tells us that he um, that his works were evil. The word evil here is used is not used in the evil sense or in the worldly sense. Uh, we, we tend, somehow, we tend to allow the world to define things for us. If we were to go out and ask people, what does evil mean? Or give me an example of evil. We would probably use Charles Manson. We'd use Adolf Hitler. Maybe we'd uh, use uh, one of the other dictators and so forth and, and look at those as being definitions of evil. But the Bible says that, that Cain's uh, um, actions were evil. What we have to understand is evil and the way that the Bible describes it is basically going against God. And we need to always understand that concept of evil. Because once again, from a worldly perspective, Cain's not going to look necessarily, especially the, the day before the event where he killed his brother, Cain is going to look like a normal guy. He might, might have a, 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 had an interaction with his family. He may have had an interaction with Abel's family. They may have come over and, and, and did things together and so forth. Uh, we certainly know that he worshipped to some degree because he offered a sacrifice and it was unacceptable. But from a worldly standpoint, we would look at a a Cain and say, this is even a religious guy because he was performing worship. But the problem comes in is that his love was that of self-interest. Isn't that the, really the way the world defines love? What can it do for me? What If I fall in love with this woman, how is she going to benefit me? And ultimately what love is, is giving the best for the other in spite of yourself. 
Isn't that reason why so many marriages ultimately end is because love according to the world is so selfish and so focused on me and so forth instead of on the other person? So we need to make sure that we don't love in the way that Cain did. Instead of... Um, love needs to be one that... Um, Instead of, uh, so instead of self-reflecting when Cain was told that his sacrifice was not acceptable, but it was not the same as Abel's, instead of self-reflecting and making the proper adjustments to God, he acted out and killed his brother. Even though he might have, uh, and I would suppose that he would have uh, uh, claimed that he loved his brother. Our love then in the contrast he's giving here, cannot be like Cain's. It cannot be superficial. It cannot be hypocritical. Uh, it cannot be selfish. It cannot sell, uh, 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 lack self-reflection. Uh, we may not be perfect, um, but we must always understand that, that there are changes that we have to make. Certainly, being in, in, uh, in a marriage relationship should teach us that. Uh, that we always have to change and make adjustments and make compromises and so forth uh, in order to uh, make that marriage work and to make that love work. So we must love one another in this kind of way in contrast to, to Cain, where he was looking out for himself only. We must be one that we're always looking for the good of others. Verse 13, marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. I hope that this comment does not shock anyone because it certainly shouldn't. The world hates us. We can look on the news and to see how the world hates us. Just about every day there's a, a new story, and I've, I've all but turned off the news these days. Uh, we just moved to Bowling Green back in November, and uh, we did not uh, get any sort of cable or television and so forth. Um, and I am not missing the news. I'm not missing the bad news. Uh, but uh, I do keep up with current events. I listen to talk radio and so forth and so on. And the fact of the matter is the world hates us. Just look at things going on in the world that teaches us that the world hates us. It hates us because we're different from them. And our difference shows the world the contrast that they're not ready to see. In a very similar manner, Cain was confronted by God that your sacrifice is not acceptable. Your brother Abel's is acceptable. And so instead of self-reflecting and saying, you know what, I need to improve on this, he went and reacted the same way the world does. He decided to get rid of his competition. He decided to destroy him. That's the reason the world hates us today. They look at us and see that we're different and it shows them in many ways that uh, how different they are and they have to destroy us for it. 
They have to call us wrong. They have to call us mean. And we have to call us uh, mean-spirited and, and, and cold-hearted and lack of love. and lack of, Look at all the things that we're described these days because it shows them what they don't want to see about themselves and they hate us for it. We need to always be people that are willing to stand for that which is true even if the world hates us for it. Verse 14 through 16. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Again, the importance of love. In these passages here, John tells us that love is a salvation issue. I had one time, I uh, was talking to a, um, a friend of mine at work. We were talking about the Bible and so forth. And uh, he is uh, of the Calvinist-minded kind of person. And of course, you know, uh, he believes that being saved by faith, by grace only, and there's nothing that we can have contribute that has anything to do with it. And one day I asked him, what about love? Eh, love's important, but it's certainly not nearly important. It, 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 it doesn't pale to the importance of grace and faith and so forth. The Bible doesn't tell us that. On multiple occasions, in several different ways, the Bible tells us that love is a salvation issue. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. It, it's that important. It's that critical. Again, we can go back to Matthew chapter 25 where Jesus gives us that scene of judgment where uh, that you gave me a cup of water, you gave me food, you gave me a clothing, you came and visited me. And, and when did we do this, Jesus? When you did it in the least of these, my brethren. And then the, 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 the goats on the left hand, uh, you gave me no water, you gave me no food, you did not do these things to me. Well, Jesus, when did we ever see you in these conditions? When you did it not unto the least of these, my brethren, you did it not unto me. Life and death. Sin and righteousness. Heaven and hell. Love is a salvation issue and we need to understand it that way. We need to always understand that loving others is putting the other's interest in front of ours. That ultimately is what God did when He demonstrated His love for us. What was the benefit of, of God in sending His only Son and watching Him die on the cross. There was no benefit to Him. There was only benefit to us. There was only suffering on their part. So He didn't do it for Himself. He did it for us. And that's the manner in which we are to love as well. I think it's interesting that uh, the, the Bible frames this in that um, love is looked at as a black and white issue. Notice here... Um, he talks about that it's basically if you don't love your brethren, then you hate your brethren. It's love or hate, black and white, life or death. It doesn't seem that the Bible is wanting to describe this in 
shades of gray. We like shades of gray. We like for there to be, yeah, but, and to have reasons why it doesn't work and so forth. How many of us, and I'm not looking for a raise of hands or any sort of volunteering, just kind of exercise we do in our mind. How many of us have had a problem with some brother in the family, in the, in the church, whether this congregation or any others, and thought, well, I'm just going to ignore them. We don't get along. I, I don't really like them. They really irritate me every time. I, so we're just, I'm just going to ignore them and, and, and hope that we just don't have to, uh, to interact with each other. I don't know about you, but I have. I've had that kind of thought process in my mind. If we've thought that way, we've got to ask ourselves the question, based upon the way the Scripture's reading here, based upon it being a, basically a two-point spectrum, love and hate, life and death, where does ignoring our brethren because we really don't get along too well fall in that scale? Doesn't seem like there's any middle ground. Doesn't seem like there's any gray area. So where's ignoring our brother and fall in that scale? It doesn't sound like love. And so we need to improve our understanding of love so that we are not hating our brother, even though we may not feel it. Ah, well, I don't hate him. But are we actively pursuing a course of action that improves things? Are we actively trying to do something like God did for us? Again, I can't help what my reaction would be if I was Jesus standing on that porch with Pilate. And he asked the crowd, what do we do with Barabbas? Release him. What about Jesus? Crucify him. Again, I can't help but think that there were possibly people in the crowd that he recognized. People that were family members of people that he healed, people that he taught, people that were in his crowd, looking out and seeing those people shouting, Crucify him. I don't know about you, but I would have a tendency to say, these people are not worth it. They're not worth it. And yet that's not what he did. Jesus went to the cross for them in the same way that he went to the cross for me. He went to the cross for those people who are our enemies exactly the same way that he went to the cross for me. He went to the cross for all those that we do not like, all those that we don't get along with, the same way that he went to the cross for me. So if we put this on a scale of love and hate... Life and death, where does ignoring the brother fall in? doesn't sound like love. And so I think we need to make improvements. Again, if, uh, for those of you, the, most of you don't know me that well, most of the time when I uh, preach things, when I teach things and so forth, I'm not pointing out at, at others because I've got things all worked out myself. I need these things just as much as anybody else. Love and action. Uh, he laid down his life for us, and we should act in a similar way. We should love, uh, lay down our life for the brethren. 
Verse 17 and 18. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shut up up his bowels of uh, compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, um, but in deed and in truth. Verse 17 reminds me a lot of another passage. Look at uh, James chapter 2 and verse 15 and 16. In some ways, it almost feels like a parallel passage uh, in, in the description that it's giving. James says in uh, James chapter 2, If a brother or sister be naked and destitute or, uh, of daily food, and one of you saying to them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not the things which you, uh, are needful to the body, What does it profit? That's the same scenario that John just laid out. Here you have the ability, you have the world's good, you see a brother in need, and you shut up your bowels, your heart of compassion. Here, James basically says that at least you have something positive. Say, be warmed and filled and go in peace, but ultimately you do nothing. Exactly what uh, John is talking about here, where you shut up your bowels of compassion. James asked the question, what does it profit? Later on, he goes on and concludes that faith without works is dead. That was the conclusion. One of these passages talking about faith in action. One of them is talking about love in action, but they're described exactly the same way. James says, faith Without the proper action is dead being alone. What does it profit if you have these things and you do not help? The same question is really, where dwells the love of God in you if you have the ability to act and you don't act in that fashion? Love is action. Love is doing something. Sometimes, too, we need to always understand that in order to act, we need to perceive more. I think that one of the, certainly not a criticism of this congregation or, or, or anything of that fashion, but just, again, looking in a broader scale, I think one of the, the problems that we sometimes have in the church is, oh, we're, we're glad to, uh, to give benevolence, providing they come and ask for it. I think sometimes we need to look differently. We need to look out differently. We need to put on a different set of glasses to perceive people that are in need. Oftentimes the people that come and ask for help are the professional askers. They're the professional con men. They're glad to ask you. And they're glad to give you a sob story. And they're glad to go and pull a con on you. I've been conned by these people before. I've, I've, I've tried helping some of those people. And, and oftentimes it, 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 it just doesn't end well. Because they're professionals and they know what they're doing. Those are the ones that ask. How many of us on a, on a daily basis run across people who are in need and have too much pride to ask? 
If we looked differently, if we looked smarter, if we looked more compassionately, if we looked differently, might we be able to see these people in need when we haven't perceived them? I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I'm trying to think out loud. But if we're only going to do benevolence to those that come and ask us, I think we need to do a better job of finding those that are in need. Isn't that the way that Jesus was able to preach the gospel so much and have such large crowds? Oftentimes he did healings. We know that on two different occasions he fed thousands of people in those occasions. And while he was feeding them, he went ahead and preached the gospel to them. He used occasions of benevolence to preach the gospel. I think we need to find creative ways to be benevolent so that we can preach the gospel but also because it is loving our brethren. Something else he says here, too, that's uh, interesting. He says that uh, we are to uh, love in truth. Love in truth. It's not love if we compromise the truth to make someone feel better. It's not love if we tell a person that their sin is okay. It is not love if we, if we tell someone that are lost that they are not lost. That's not loving in truth. That's loving, that's, that's a worldly version of love, a world's definition of love to make someone feel better momentarily doesn't do any good to make people that are in need of the gospel to convince them that everything's just fine with their life. That's not loving in truth. And it's not loving at all. It's heartless in a sense. When we have what they ultimately need and we fail to give it to them and we're in the situation to have that conversation. It's not easy to do. It's very tough to do. Because we like, we're like everybody else. We like to be liked. We like to be uh, uh, approved of by others. And ultimately these lead to difficult conversations. But nobody said that Christianity was going to be easy. It wasn't easy for Jesus, his three years of ministry on this earth. It wasn't easy for Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. But He didn't tell us it was going to be easy. He didn't say love others as long as it's easy. He didn't say do those things that's, a, that's easy to do in, in your passive time. We need to do what needs to be done. In fact, it is not love if we say nothing and allow them to believe it's a lie. And as we said earlier, if we say Nothing to spare their feelings. How does that fall into our two-position scale? If we simply say nothing and we know that there is a reason why a brother, why a sister, why even someone out in the world is looking, seeking for advice or whatever, and, and we need to tell them the truth about their lives and we pass on that occasion... Love and hate. Two-point scale. Allowing them to walk away. Where does that fall on that two-point scale? Is that love? 
Or is it not love? Oh, I think it'd be easy for us to say, well, it, it's not, it's not, it's not necessarily love. But if it's a two-point scale, love and hate, if it's not really love, then it has to be hate. We have to understand that love sometimes is difficult. Questions or comments? Anybody? Alright, verse 19. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before them. For if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemns us not, then we have confidence towards God. This being said in the context of whether we love our brethren as we should, um, but this can be taken, of course, in a greater context of uh, Christian servitude in general, that, uh, that we can uh, know the truth and we can have confidence in our hearts that things that when we, when we're walking in the light, we, we should have the confidence. God wants us to have the confidence that we are walking in the light, that we are in a relationship with Him. Verse 2 though, or in verse 20, he says, uh, for if our heart condemn us. This, this um, uh, part of the passage kind of threw me for a loop. We need to understand the proper context of what he's talking about here because from the first glance at it, our hearts condemn us. Can our hearts condemn us? Absolutely our hearts condemn us. Matthew chapter 15 verse 17. Do not, do you not understand that whatsoever entereth into the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast out in the draught? And those uh, things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart and they defile the man? For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, uh, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands defileth not the man. In first reading that passage, verse 20, that was the first thing that popped in my mind. Oh, we're talking about the heart condemning us. Our hearts can condemn us. But that really isn't the context of what is being discussed here. And so we need to uh, understand that. I'm one of those people that I typically don't go and look up a lot of words in the Greek to understand their meanings and so forth. Uh, I've always said that I think the person without an understanding of Greek can understand the Bible just fine. This is one of those cases I went to look at the uh, meaning of this word uh, that is being translated uh, um, in here as being uh, condemned to better understand what it means. The word here is actually defined, and I'm not going to try to uh, say what the name of the word was, uh, the Greek word was, but the definition here is to note against. To note against. That certainly can conclude or include condemnation, but not uh, what this uh, passage is talking about. Instead, uh, it's talking about that through our weaknesses and failures, we may not feel that while I'm trying, and I think that I'm walking in the light, I'm not sure. And so he's talking about our hearts condemning us, or really our hearts failing us in that way. He's talking about the heart from a, a, an emotional center. That our feelings and emotions can always be trusted. 
Uh, we've talked about that in this class already, that our, that our emotions can't be trusted. And so here's an occasion where we think that we're obeying God, we think that we're walking in the light, we think that we're doing the things that we should, but we've kind of got that question in our hearts and in our minds, and we're not really sure. And that's where it says that God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. He knows when we're doing right. And He wants us to have confidence, even though sometimes... We can doubt ourselves. But blessed is uh, our heart uh, if our uh, heart condemn us not and we can have confidence towards God. We need to have that confidence towards God. I am walking in the light and I'm doing what I can and I'm loving my brethren the best I can. And yeah, I made some mistakes in the past, but I'm repenting of those things and I'm moving forward and God wants us to have that confidence. He wants us to have that security and not always have that a thought or opinion of God that God's always looking to strike us down. God's always looking for us to mess up and therefore find a reason or excuse to condemn us. It's easy sometimes to fall in that trap. But sometimes that is a misguided emotion that we need to try to dismiss. Verse 22 through 24. And whatsoever we ask, we, uh, 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 we receive of Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. And this is His commandment, that we uh, believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave His commandment. And that he keepeth the commandment, dwelleth in him, and, uh, and he in him, and hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given. Christianity, I think, can be summed up into two main categories. And that is controlling ourselves from succumbing to temptation and sin and living a positive life for God. Both of those things have to be present. In, in, a, in a faithful Christian's life. I think sometimes that people can get out of balance and think that if I concentrate all my effort into refraining from sin, I, I'm going to stay away from all those sins and so forth, and, and they tend to be pew-sitters, uh, and, and they don't really do a lot of things actively, but they're not living in sin. Their life is off-balance. And then we've also heard uh, uh, stories uh, uh, of people that have dedicated their life to service and so forth. And they've, they've given of their means and they live in poverty in order to help people out. But they're not exactly obeying the commandments of God. We can't, we can't think that we can get by just doing one or the other. We have to have that balance. We have to live according to the commandments of God. We must refrain ourselves from sin, but we also must live that positive life for God. That's really where loving the brethren, loving one another comes in. Is it a positive, active thing that we must participate in? In verse 22, basically he, he summarizes it in those two things. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him because we, one, keep it. Commandments, refraining from sin, and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. We have to do both of those things. It's not just good enough to say, look at the commandments that I kept. Well, what did you do for me? Remember, it was the, uh, uh, the parable of the, um, uh, 
talents. That I think Jesus addresses this concept of someone basically doing the right things, except for he just didn't do anything positive. Parable of the talents. We know the one talent man received the one talent. He was scared of his uh, owner, so he buried it. When his owner comes back, he he basically says, well, I was scared of you, and so I simply buried it. And here's your one talent back. And Jesus, in some ways, gives some of the most harsh criticism of anybody in the Bible. You wicked and slothful servant. You did nothing with what I gave you. You did nothing. Somehow I can imagine that there's going to be people that try to go on the day of judgment and use as a defense, well, I didn't do anything. I I didn't commit that sin. I didn't commit adultery. I didn't commit this one. I didn't rob any banks. I didn't kill anybody. I I didn't do these things. Look at all these things that I didn't do. See, I didn't do anything. And Jesus is going to say, yep, that's your problem. You didn't do anything. We have to do those things that please Him as well. And when we do, He says, whatever we ask, we will receive. Now keep in mind, this is keeping in the proper context of when we ask, we get what God knows is best for us. We're all thankful for the fact that God doesn't always give us exactly what we want and ask for. There's been times that I have prayed for things. Specifically, the example that comes to my mind is praying for jobs. And I thought, man, that was a job that has my name all over it. And I wouldn't get it. Wouldn't even get called for an interview. And I'm scratching my head saying, that was perfect for that job. Why didn't God answer that prayer the way that I wanted to? Because He knew best for me. And we always need to understand that. Yes, God is going to answer our prayers. He's going to give us when He asks, when we ask, but we always need to understand that it's not always what we want. Verse 24 sounds a lot like John chapter 15. And he that keepeth his commandment dwells in him, and he in him, and hereby we know that he abides in us by the Spirit which he hath. It sounds a lot like uh, John chapter 15 where he talks about that Jesus is divine and we are the branches. If we abide in Him, then we uh, that that we'll be able to be enriched and so forth and so on. Um, I don't think it's any coincidence that the same writer wrote both of those things. We need to always understand that by keeping His commandments, we abide, we have that desired relationship with God. It, it, It... always fascinates me how that people of the world can talk about having a relationship with God and have a complete disregard for what the Bible says. Have a complete disregard for even knowing what the Bible says. Complete disregard. They don't even care and yet they believe with all their heart that they have some sort of positive relationship with God. There is no relationship without keeping His commandments. There is no abiding in Him without doing what He says. There is no relationship with Him unless we follow His will. If we care less about 
the Bible, if we care less about the church, if we care less about uh, doing what God wants us to do, we're not following God's will, we're following our own will. And following our own will is what causes the need to be saved to begin with. Because we... We were making our own decisions with a disregard for for God. And we came to the realization that those bad decisions led to a need for salvation. We understand this. And yet there's still so many people who believe that they don't have to be religious. They don't have to be a Christian. They don't have to be... But they have a relationship with God. We need to make sure that that mindset does not creep in to our minds as well. Questions or comments before we move on to chapter 4? Anybody? Chapter 4, 1 through 3. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the uh, uh, come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not uh, of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it, uh, it should come, and even now already is in the world. The word spirit here is really referring back to the false teachers that we talked about in chapter 2 where we talked about uh, the Antichrist, and the Antichrist not being a single person, but the concept that uh, uh, of Jesus and the Gnostics. Uh, Gnosticism that was prevalent in that time that believed that uh, that um, uh, uh, the man of the flesh could not be a deity and deity could not take the form of flesh and so there had to be two different people and so forth and so that is the test here of whether Jesus uh, uh, the Son of God could have taken the the, uh, the flesh uh, here he tells us that we are not to believe every spirit or every religious teacher. Uh, I think this is much more relatable today than it might have been for them. Uh, there probably was more than the one false teaching that was going around, but uh, this early in the church, there probably wasn't a, uh, certainly not the number of false teachings, the false number of false doctrines that we have to deal with uh, today. The New Testament is uh, full of warnings for us, warning against the dangers of uh, uh, false teachers. Uh, false teachers are not just those people that have a, a differing view or a, a different perspective, but rather the Bible describes false teachers as those people that are dangerous to the flock. Just look um, uh, very briefly at what Jesus himself uh, says about false teachers in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 15. Beware of false prophets which come unto you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ravening wolves. There is only one thing that a wolf wants to do with a sheep, and that's kill him and consume him. He doesn't want to take him home and play games. He doesn't want to just tease him. He doesn't want to bully him. He wants to destroy him. And that's the concept that Jesus is giving us here. 
that the false teachers destroy the flock. They destroy people's faith. We also see this very same thing in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 through 9, also in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2 through 5, and many other passages. One thing that uh, keeps uh, uh, to keep in mind is that those that we're dealing with is, was primarily dealing with this uh, this one uh, primary false doctrine of Gnosticism, the concept that Jesus could not take uh, that could not be God and take the form of man. So in verse two and three, John gives them a test to use uh, that if uh, you do not believe that Jesus came in the flesh, then they were a false teacher. And that was the test that he was giving them. Verse 4, You are of uh, God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. It seems that the contentions here between the early church and those people that have lost or left uh, because of these false doctrine, because of Gnosticism and so forth, that there must have been some real contention uh, going on amongst them. I don't know if you've ever been in a congregation where a split was taking place or, or major uh, uh, doctrinal issues, major issues were taking place. But it can be very stressful. It, it can be overwhelming at times. And I, I think that's uh, exactly why he describes them as overcoming it. They got past that period of strife and so forth in their life. Um, but they had overcome. And then John makes this encouraging message, one that we oftentimes paraphrase and use uh, as encouragement to others. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The statement serves as, as uh, great encouragement uh, for all kinds of things that we struggle with. Um, that it, basically, if God's on our side, who really who can be against us? Because God is greater than any other thing that we can overcome. Um, and, and that's something that uh, that we can know uh, with the truth uh, that God is greater than any struggle we might have. But in the proper context, God says that He or the John says that God is greater than He. That is in the world. So I think he's not just talking about general struggles, but he's talking specifically about those false teachers that cause that kind of trouble and the source of the uh, the um, uh, the false doctrine, which would be Satan. Uh, that God is greater than uh, than he false teacher and or Satan that is in the world. That is certainly comforting as well to know that uh, that God, no matter what temptation that Satan can throw, he can throw his absolute best at us. And God, when he's on our side, is greater than all those things. God is bigger. God is more powerful. God is stronger and can help us to overcome all those things because he has invested in each of us. He's invested His Son in us. That when we were purchased uh, with His blood, He gave us His greatest investment, the blood of His Son. And for that reason, He's gone because He has invested in us. He wants us to succeed. And He will help us to succeed. We are out of time for this evening and we'll leave off uh, right here. Thank you so much for your good attention.